page. Um, if you don't know me, if you, this is your first time here, um, I'm the lead pastor at Connection Church, Savannah, and I just want to tell you how awesome it is that you are here um, to worship with us this morning. Um, and our heart is that you would be connected to a growing relationship with Jesus. We have a very clear and specific vision and mission for our church. We believe God has called every Christian, every church to reach the nations. We believe that God has called every Christian and every church to reach their neighborhoods, their families for the gospel. And our heart today is that would be no different, that God would indwell you and move you and motivate you to be on mission for him this morning, right? And so this morning, that's our heart. And so um, this morning, if you want to go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we are in the fifth week of our series called Undivided through the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you haven't been here and this is your first week, I'm sorry. I'm going to go ahead and apologize this morning early um, before we get going too far. Um, you know, if you, if you want to go ahead and turn there, um, we also have a reading plan. Who's been accessing the reading plan in 1 Corinthians? About, okay, a few of us. All right, cool. So we have that accessible at our next steps table. There's a paper for all you old school, old-fashioned people that want to put a piece of paper in their book to read it, their Bible to read it. We have on our Church Center app. Um, you can access it there. You can access it on our website. So there's no excuse on where you can access it. If you want to get it, you can get it, okay? And so if, you, if, you're, if, you're, if you're still like, I don't know how to access the internet, um, grab somebody in a blue shirt after service, and they will walk you through how to work your cell phone, okay? And so this morning, that's our heart. So the central theme of this book so far has been unity, right? Our heart has been unity uh, in the church, and the unity in the church is centered on who? Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone. And so, and we may have, we talked about this before, we may have preferences and desires, but the Bible points to the God's desire for his church is for it to be mature and unified and centered on Jesus and nothing else. And this morning, that has to be our heart. So what Paul's been teaching, what he's been doing for us in the last four chapters now is dealing with divisions in the church and showing that, guys, what you're saying is not aligning with what you're doing. Anybody ever dealt with that in their life? I've, I'm saying this, but I'm, my life may not be adding up. You know, we may, we're quick to point to other people that are doing that, but it's hard for us to do it in our own life, right? Like you may be saying, you may be, you believe this, right? But you may not be acting this out. And so the gospel brings us together around a common mission to see Jesus, Jesus' name reach the nations, to see his glory reach all people and that every person would hear and have access to the gospel. And that has to be our heart every time we meet, every time we open this word. Because let me tell you guys, this word is everything to you. This morning, anytime you open this book, there's an opportunity for God to move in your life. There's an opportunity for God to change how you see things, how you see life, how you see the world. And my heart today as a pastor is that you would allow this book, not any pastor or leader, you would allow this book to change your heart and your life. And you would align your life with this and nothing else. Yeah. And so this morning, that has to be our heart. So, and last week what we saw, I saw Billy challenging us with the question, are you living a life worth imitating? When it comes to your life in Christ, are you living a life worth imitating? Are you living a life where your children, where your friends, where your work, where the people that you work with, are, are you living a life in a way that people are looking at you and say, I need to live my life like this guy or this lady because they're living for Christ and there's something different in their life. And so what I've seen is there's so many Christians, are, they're living a life where they're going through the motions of their faith, but aren't really living on mission and they aren't concerned about making disciples on the mission of God or even pleasing the Lord in the way that they live. And, and I'll tell you this as a promise, we'll always work to make sure this church aligns ourselves with the word of God and the mission of God. Has to. But it's going to take all of us. It's going to take all of us aligning our hearts, using our gifts, building up the church to maturity, to see the church built up and sent out on mission. So 
I want to give you a promise is that we'll be a church and a people who live lives pursuing missional living. If you're a part of Connection Church and you're not living on mission, I pray that you're a little uncomfortable, right? I pray that you see that and that you get a little uncomfortable. I need to get my life on mission for God because I want to tell you, we're going to be a, we're going to be a church that is worth imitating. For the people that are coming behind us in those rooms over there that are one and three, four, five, and six years old who want to know what it means to be a disciple maker. That has to be our heart is raising up the next generation of disciple makers. The question is, will you individually join us as, as you're saying, hey, I'm heart and soul at Connection. Are you going to join in with what it means to be heart and soul, seeing the church push forward? Will you leverage your life for the gospel? Will you leverage your life for the urgency of the gospel to see the gospel reach the places of the world that it's not? That's our heart. So I want to pray over us and for us this morning. And I just want us to get our heart in a posture of worship, a posture of reverence, because worship doesn't stop when the music stops. Worship stops. Worship never stops for the Christian. And so as we open this word, I pray that our hearts would just be in a proper posture before the Lord, because this morning's text, I ain't gonna lie to you, it's hard. And so I just want to pray for us. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for Jesus. God, it really is all about you. It's all about Jesus. This morning, we pray for the hearts in this room that are, that are hard, God, that are cold, God, that are just lukewarm. Lord, I pray for a revival to sweep through the hearts of the people in this room right now, Father, in Jesus' name. God, I pray that your mission, God, your heart for people would come alive in this church. God, that we would see people sent out of these walls to sent out of this church to go to reach the nations, to go and plant churches, to go and see disciples made where disciples aren't being made, Father. Lord, use us. God, put our hearts in the proper posture before you, Father, humbly and submissive, Father, to you. God, I pray that the word would just, just, just affect our hearts in a way where, God, when we read it, we have to move. God, we're not just reading it and, and it bouncing off, but God, it's, it's, it's planting seeds that are growing and producing crops 30 and 60 and 100 times, Lord. God, I pray we will be a church that is passionate about making disciples and nothing else, God. I pray that Sunday mornings would not just be a checkbox on our list. I pray that connect groups and time in the word and time in prayer and time together outside of these walls, spending time encouraging one another, God, would not be a, a checkbox on our list of things to do during the week, Father. Father, this is who we are. God, I pray that your name would be made great through the people in this room, through the word that's spoken this morning. God, you speak, God. Shut my mouth, Father. Bring your word um, to light to people, Father. You're a, you receive glory, God. Lord, may you be made great, God. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Everybody's ready? It's about to be good. Okay, good. Cool. So this week as I was reading, I'm like, man, I don't know how to kind of, how do you like get around this a little bit and kind of come at this text in a way that's kind of a little more, you know, easy for people to digest. But then I was like, Michael, what you talking about? That's not your, that's not how you do things, right? You go straight ahead and you hit the word right on, right? You go straight forward. Okay, so we're going to just jump in. Verse 1. So what we've seen in the first four chapters is, remember I told you at the beginning of the series that the first four chapters, he's dealing with divisions. The next two or three chapters, you're going to see Paul dealing with sin in the church and how to respond to sin in the church. And so what we're looking at is a new section of 1 Corinthians. He's changing directions away from division, and now he's looking at sin in the body. And so what we're seeing is that. Okay, so the first verse is this. It says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And the kind of sexual morality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Welcome to church. If it's your first time here this morning, I apologize. You just came on probably the most awkward Sunday you could probably imagine. Okay, so 
This is a great day for you to be here. I'm just, I'm just joking. So I should probably acknowledge this also, um, that the subject matter this morning, as you can see from this first verse, has some adult themes to it. So this will be a great moment for you to familiarize yourself with Connection Kids if you're not ready to have those conversations with your children. Um, if, you're, if you're okay with it, then just buckle up and let's get on it, okay? Anybody good? Okay. So if you remember from week one, we talked about, we saw that there's, there's five major sections in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. What we see, verse, the first section is chapters one through four about the divisions in the church. And so chapter five, Paul is going to change directions and come in. I just, I just mentioned this. And he's addressing some conditions in the church regarding sin. And so what happens is what we're seeing is a more specific sin here. Is a, it's sexual sin. And what Paul is going to do through this chapter is he's going to show us how the church is supposed to respond biblically to sin in the body. How we're supposed to respond to open, unrepentant sin in the body. So there's types of sin. There's types of uh, just, there's, there's sin that, that's just open and unrepentant. You know that you're living in sin and you're choosing to stay there. This is the type of sin that Paul is going to be referring to today. Okay, and so that's what we're looking at. So what you remember, if you remember Corinth, what we talked about in the first week of this series, Corinth was a very extremely immoral city. Remember we talked about it was located between two major ports, which turned this city into an economic powerhouse. There was, there was money for days. That, um, a lot of the young, rich people of the day of the Roman Empire would come to Corinth um, as a popular vacation destination, really. Uh, as I read the Bible, I don't really think about people taking vacations, but apparently they did. And so they were taking vacations in this place, and sexual immorality came along with young, rich people, Right? And so what you see is there were hundreds of temples to Greek and Roman gods throughout the city. You can go there today and see beautiful architecture and ruins of, of beautiful things happening. You see, in these temples, there were worship rituals that more times than not included prostitution. And so you see all these things in the culture surrounding the church. And, and the point is that sexual immorality was all around them. And the church's acceptance of these cultural norms began to affect the church. You see that? And so as we look at this, Paul says in verse 1, he says, this kind of immorality is not even tolerated among the pagans. So did you hear what it, do you, do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying, you know it's bad when unsaved people are looking at the church and what you're doing is saying that's wrong. Like we should be the people that are setting the stage for morality, right? We should be setting the standard for morality in the world, not the unsaved. And so verse 1, it says sexual morality that's not even tolerated among the Gentiles, and so as you look at that, that's, that's some impressive sin in that moment. It says, his father's wife. That verse, I know that can be kind of confusing. It says, his father's wife. And so most scholars believe that it was his stepmom since Paul calls her his father's wife and not his mom. And so I don't know, I don't know, honestly, what it is. And I honestly don't care. It's nasty either way, right? But either way, let me just affirm this to you, okay? If there's a woman in your life that you call mom, this behavior is crossing the line, okay? Um, especially for a Christian, and so the, the, phrase, the phrase is written in a very present, continual tense, which means it was an ongoing thing. He was living in sin, and he was continuing in sin, and he knew that people knew about it. He knew that people in the church knew about it, and he didn't care that people in the church knew about it. Do you see that? So you see the evil in that moment. And guys, the connection, I'll tell you this, we have people here, so we have problems. Anytime you have people involved in a church, you have problems, right? There's issues. But to my knowledge, we've never had this issue but rather than addressing this, the church, the church was overlooking it. So let's look what Paul says in verses 2 and 3. He says, and you're arrogant. He says, you're arrogant. 
Shouldn't you be filled with grief, grief and remove your, from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I'm absent in the body, I'm present in spirit as one who is present with you in the same way. I have every, already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. And so, guys, they were arrogantly looking past sin, and, this, and they were doing this in a way that were saying, hey, we're a grace-filled, affirming church. We look at what we're doing. We're, we're, we're not condemning this brother. We're full of grace, and we love this brother, right? And, like, Paul is looking at them and saying, what's wrong with you? Like, this is not, like, this is not a, a place for grace because this person is unrepentant. He's living in it, and he's wanting to live in it, and we're supposed to call that brother out and, and gracefully bring him back into the church. And what we see Paul saying to us here is to overlook known sin in our personal lives in the church or in the life of a brother or sister is to affirm sin. You see that? To overlook sin that's known in a brother or sister or in the church is for me to affirm it and say it's okay. You see that? To to take it further, overlooking or tolerating sin in the name of grace doesn't highlight grace. It affirms the sin. You see that? It don't don't make you look like a a grace-filled, mercy-filled church. It makes you look like a progressive church that does not take the word of God seriously. So my question is this, why were they dealing with this? Like, why wasn't, why wasn't the church not dealing with this? So I, when I looked and I was thinking through this, what I see, they, I mean, there's a couple of reasons. Hey, this is Corinth. You know, Corinth is kind of like Vegas. <coughs> what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, right? <coughs> they could have been, Christ has set us free. So, you know, we've been called to love, right? We're called to love this brother, Right? But what Paul does, Paul seems to, to address both of these groups in this chapter. Paul knew, Paul knew, that, Paul knew that the church knew that this was wrong. They were being passive. They were being passive, not addressing things. Probably the reason why they weren't dealing with this was because it would be awkward or hard to deal with. Who would agree? <laughs> It'd be hard to agree. Uh, bro, you got to stop sleeping with your mom. <laughs> Who wants to have that conversation? It's awkward. But I guess... That's where we've got to ask the question as a church this morning. I pray that you hear this. Based on what we've already seen in 1 Corinthians and as we've been praying through this book, are we going to build God's church according to his word and his ways or our opinions and our thoughts? Does that make sense? Because it doesn't matter what I think or say. It doesn't matter what my opinions are. This is what matters. If I'm reading this book and I find something I don't agree with, I have to assume I'm wrong and it's right. And I have to assume that I need to conform my life to this and die to myself and come alive in Christ. It's part of that sanctification process. A man once said that sin will always take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay and it'll cost you more than you want to pay. How many of you know that's true? And the people that are most affected by sin in your life is not you. And this morning... These types of conversations that Paul was expecting the Corinthians to have with this brother, we have to have these conversations according to God's plan and according to God's word. Guys, as a church, we need to confess that many churches in, 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 our, in our country haven't done this properly and are even resistant to doing this or they just don't know how. And as you read the scripture, the Bible gives us a very clear picture of how we're supposed to do this, guys. We need to pray for wisdom for our leaders. Guys, if you're not praying for the wisdom of your connect group leaders, of your pastors, please start. 
because leaders need wisdom in how to lead. We, we have to see that we're responsible for caring for our brothers and our sisters around us in the church. One of our cultures in connect groups is, is care. Our, the cultures of our connect groups are growth, care, and mission. We want to grow together. We want to care for one another, and we want to be on mission together. Well, you can't grow together and you can't be on mission together unless you're caring for one another. And part of caring for one another is guarding your brother's back from sin. And this morning, that has to be something that we look at and investigate as we do our life together in this place. And so if you're living, guys, if we're living in sin, if your brother or sister is living in sin, walking off of a cliff of life, we're responsible in loving and going after them and pulling them back. If you look in, this won't be on the screen. I added this late last night. James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. If you want to turn there or write it down. James says, my brothers and sisters, if anyone among you strays from the truth and someone turns them back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from their error of their way will save his soul from death and cover over a multitude of sin. We're called to go after our brothers and sisters who are sinful. I was having a conversation with a sister this morning in the church about different things that were, that were going on in our body and different things about connectors and serving, all these other things. And, and I was thinking through like what that looks like. And, and, and we were talking about, I just don't, it's just awkward to, to hold people accountable to what they say they're going to do. If you say, hey, Michael, I'm a Christian. I'm called to hold you accountable to what it looks like to be a Christian, right? But when I go to do that, that's awkward sometimes because why? We live in a country where I have my hula hoop and I don't want you to come in it right? We live life, even in the church, where we're at arm's length sometimes. Like, I'll give you this part of me, but I won't give you all of me. I'll give you the things that make me look like a Christian, but the things that I want to keep secret, I'm going to keep them secret, right? I'm going to keep the dark corners of my life secret because I don't want you to, to think it differently. And so we have this image that we try to, try to produce. And guys, I want to tell you, we cannot be passive like this anymore. The culture that we're living in, coming out of a pandemic, the, the consumerism that has overtaken our country because of it, the, the things that are, that are, that are, that are the selfishness and, the, and all the things that are kind of coming out of humanity right now, especially in the church, the church now more than ever cannot afford to be passive anymore. And my heart today is that even when it's hard, we have to do the, the hard things, the right things. And I can, I can assure you that this wasn't easy for the Corinthian church or like, we got to go to this guy's house and tell him he can't sleep with his mom no more. That's going to be awkward. I don't want to do that. Like, when they confronted this brother, I'm pretty sure he didn't say, wait, 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 this isn't okay? I can't do this? He didn't say, hey, mommy, did you know we can't do this? That's not what he was saying. There's probably some awkwardness in that moment. Like, hey, bro, like, no, this guy was probably offended. Hey, maybe this guy was one of the bigger givers in the church. They didn't want to offend him because he'll stop giving. Maybe he was popular in the church, and the, you know, he, he, he had influence over a lot of people. Maybe, that he didn't, that, that, maybe that's the reason why they were having that, that struggle in, in that place. And so it's easier for the church to just leave it alone, thinking this is just going to be hard and messy, so let's just leave it alone and kind of move on, right? Anybody ever thought that before? Anybody ever felt that way about a situation? Let's just sweep it under the rug and see if it goes away, right? You know, you know, someone, you know someone is, is doing wrong, but you know how they'll probably react, so it's easier just to leave it alone, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Everyone that's in any room, eight in this room, you say, nope, never felt that way in my life. I'm going to hit it head on. Let's do this thing. Everybody else in the room? Yeah, I've thought that, and it stresses me out, right? And so as I'm thinking through this, Paul takes another angle. He says, a brother of yours is being destroyed by sin. He's saying somebody in your church 
is being destroyed. His life is being turned over by sin and it's starting to affect the church and you're doing nothing about it. We're called to confront and lovingly draw him back. And what's happened is he's saying, you're more concerned about your reputation and your comfort rather than the holiness of God, rather than the life of the church. And so verse two, what does he say? You should be filled with grief. And as I was reading that, the actual better word for that is to mourn. You should mourn for this brother. And as I was looking at some of the Greek texts, it says, it, the mourn literally means weeping for someone who has died. So someone who's caught in sin in that moment, I should be looking at them, God, I'm on my face praying. God, bring them back, bring them back. And what this shows me is we don't have the proper perspective of what sin is and what sin does. And we need to have our hearts turn back to who God is, the holiness of God, and sin in comparison to that. And as I was reading this, as I was reading this this week, I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Verse 2, we're supposed to remove him from the church? Like kick him out? Like out of the church? Yes. So, hey, Michael, are you saying we're supposed to kick people out of the church? I'm not saying it. The Bible's saying it. And that's what I want, to, I want to remind us of. This is what the Bible is saying. You, you may say, what about unconditional love and acceptance? Well, we are unconditionally loving and, and accepting of people. We're called to love unconditionally, but our fellowship, membership in the church is conditional. If you're not saved, you're technically not a part of the church. And a lot of people think that attending a church service makes you a part of the church. Some of you may be here this morning thinking that this is hard for a pastor to say because he wants you to come back. But this is just biblical teaching. Biblical was what Paul said. And so as I read this, you know, I thought, I thought we're supposed to be an open and accepting community. Yeah, we are. But one of our primary callings is to represent Christ, to represent the community of Christ. And yes, Jesus welcomed people in with all kinds of problems and broken backgrounds. Paul, he was a murderer. Mary Magdalene was a, a prostitute that had seven demons at some point in her life. And, but, but each one of those examples had one thing in common. They had come to the point of repentance in their life. They have come to the point of, it's no longer about me, it's about Christ. If Christ points to a thing in my life and says, give that to me, I joyfully give it to him. It's no longer about just edifying myself with sin and the lust of my flesh and the pride of life. It's, I, God, what about me do you want to, 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 to sanctify? What about me do you want me to hand over to you? And when he says the thing that he wants, I open my hands and hand it to my Savior because he died for me. And that's the heart of a believer in Christ. And so this morning what we see is these people like Paul and like Mary Magdalene, they came, they recognized that Jesus is Lord and that his way and only his way would suffice for their life. And, and let me tell you this this morning, if you don't know this, Jesus will take you with all of your problems, with all of your issues. Thank God, right? For some of us in here, thank God for that for me. He'll take all of your issues, take all of my issues. But you have to be willing to turn from your sin and turn towards him. You have to be willing to repent, to, to, to agree with God. God, yes, I'm a sinner. God, I have, I have gone my own way and I have, I have, I have died to myself because of my sin. I'm coming to you. I'm, I'm dying to myself and coming to you. God, make me alive in Christ. And that's how you're saved. You turn away from sin and towards Christ. And that's the epitome of repentance. Let's look at verse four. 
He says, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in the spirit and the spirit and the power of Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. All right, man, we're getting some heavy stuff, Michael. The heck, hand him over to Satan? Can you imagine a more strongly worded sentence? <laughs> hand the person over to Satan. Paul, hold on a second. Like we, we're just gonna, we, we wanna go back to some fluffy church, right? Let's not talk about handing somebody over to Satan today because this is weird. It's freaking me out a little bit, right? It's intense, man. Not only do you have to remove this person from membership in the church, you deliver them over to Satan? Like, Paul, what the heck's happening here? I thought you were, what, you know, what's going on here? Well, listen, Paul had to do this. If you've read 1 Timothy, you see Hymenaeus, Alexander, and Philetus in 1 Timothy. They were preaching heresy. They were preaching a form of Gnosticism. And Paul kicked them out of the church. And he says, I turned them over to Satan. I'm like, man, like, Paul, that's intense, man. But listen, as you read this this week, how many of y'all read that and were like, what does that even mean? I'm, I'm turning this person over to Satan. <laughs> Let me affirm you in this really quick. God's ultimate plan for church discipline, God's ultimate goal for church discipline is always restoration and reconciliation. It's never about your destruction or your demise. So even whenever Paul is saying, turn this brother over to Satan, it's in attempts and in hopes that this person will be restored back to the brotherhood and will be reconciled back to the body. And so we have to remember that. So what is church discipline? This is, as you look, if you look in scripture, um, to be a member of the church, you have to submit to God as a Christian. You have to submit to the, to the authority of God and the leadership of his church. Um, and so what, so what is church discipline? As we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 18, those are the places that you go to to kind of look at what these things are. And so the best definition that I could come up with for church discipline is the process of correcting sinful behavior among members of the local body for the purpose of protecting the church, for restoring the sinner back to God, and to renew fellowship among the church members. The process of correcting sinful behavior among members of the local church body for the purpose of protecting the church, restoring the sinner back to God, and renewing fellowship among the church members. As I read that, I'm like, man, let me tell you this. Without submission to God, without a submission to one another in the church, this type of restoration can't happen. If anybody that's a rogue Christian in this room, this type of restoration and reconciliation cannot happen. It doesn't happen. A member of a church, a Christian, submits to the authority of God, to the leadership of the church, giving influence of their lives over to God and to the leaders of the church. In in return, the church holds the church accountable to the plans and the mission of God. And so it's a very, it's a a process where we are, we're bringing each other into alignment with the Bible. But what does Paul say? According to scripture, the church provides an umbrella of protection from the curse of judgment and sin. The church provides protection. You're in the house. The church protects you from some of the effects of sin in your life and sin around you. It shields you from a lot of the effects of sin. And this is why it's so important for a Christian to be connected to the body of Christ. This is why there's a fight right now in this pandemic time where Satan has given everybody in the world an opportunity to back away from the community of saints in this moment. And God, and God is calling us back together and Satan wants to divide. 
That's why we're divided over vaccines, over masks, over politics, over race, over all these things. When God is saying, come back together. Be unified around my name and around my word. We're called to protect one another. And this is why I always say, there are no rogue Christians. There are no Christians that they're lone rangers that do it on their own. There's none, none of that. That's not what we're called to. We're called to be united together. And Paul says to remove this unrepentant member from that umbrella of protection so that they experience some of that pain from their sin in hopes that that would drive them back to the church. Do you see that? And so that's what we're seeing in this, in this chapter. Paul's, and even so, you're going to see in just a moment that Paul is using the imagery of the Passover in the next few verses. He's going to bring it up repeatedly. You might remember the Passover in Exodus. Remember that? So what we see is God had told Israel that because of their persistent rebellion against God's plan, that he would kill every firstborn in every household in Egypt. This was like the last plague of Egypt in that moment. There's, there was like 10 plagues. They said this is the last one. They would, they would kill every firstborn member of every household in Egypt. So all the Jewish people who were living in Egypt, they were just as much of a sinner as the Egyptians were. But what happened is they obeyed God. God said that he would spare their firstborn sons if they sacrificed the lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. You see the imagery of Christ here? And when the angel saw the blood of the, on the doorsteps, he passed over the house and he didn't enter it. So they were saved. It's just like Christ. If we look to the lamb, the blood of the lamb covers your life, you're saved. It's just it's the same imagery. So think about this imagery. Inside the church, inside the house, you're covered under the blood with Jesus, you're safe. Outside the house, you're exposed to death. You're unprotected. You're on your own, kind of doing things on your own. Paul is saying in the same way, put this person outside the house so that they're exposed to the destruction and the curses of sin. This is a hard sermon to preach. And I'm telling you this morning, hopefully God's grace, by God's grace, hopefully by God's grace, when they start to experience the consequences of their sin, they'll wake up to the seriousness of sin and come back. Has anybody ever dealt with this before? I have. I've been in a place where I haven't been physically removed from a church, but I've walked away, and God let me experience some of the consequences of my sin, and what did it do? It obviously drove me back, because I'm preaching today. But I'm, saying, but I'm just saying, I'm, but I'm, what I'm saying is, is I'm telling you right now that that's the heart that Paul has, is restoration and reconciliation. So let's be clear about something really quick. This is what we're called to do with someone in the church who is saying, I am a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I've been washed by the blood. I've experienced the Holy Spirit in my life. And then this person turns and lives a life of unrepentant, open sin. Those things don't match. And this is what we're called to do with a brother or a sister who is in that place. But let's be clear. I need to be very clear this morning so I'm not getting emails or phone calls or Facebook messages about this. This type of thing only happens after every other attempt at reconciliation has been tried and rejected. Does that make sense? Matthew 18, turn there real quick. Put your finger in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and turn over to Matthew 18 really fast. Jesus actually lays out these steps of what this looks like in Matthew chapter 18. So hold your place there. We're going to look over here for a second. Once you get there, raise your hand. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Matthew chapter 18 will be in verse 15 through 17, I believe is the, yeah, through 17. So let's read this together. Matthew 18 verse 15. Well, look, these are the steps. We're going to go step by step. 
If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in what? In private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. So the first step in this is private correction. In the days of social media, in the days of gossip and all these things that we have, this is not done correctly. What do we do a lot of times before we go to our brother? Did you hear what Thomas did? Did you hear what this person did? Man, this guy, he, he's supposed to be a Christian. He ain't doing this. He ain't doing this. I guess I better go talk to him. No. You go to the brother first, in private, alone, by yourself, in those moments. Don't text them. Don't call them. Go to them in humility. Don't bring 10 people with you and team up on them. Just you and them alone and plead with them. Say, brother, these are some things I'm noticing. This is what's happened. These are the, these are the facts. Can you explain it to me? I, I just, I want to walk with you. I love you. Do you know I love you? Remember Paul, remember Paul, remember Billy last week talking about how he reproached his friends and the, in, in counseling, he always said, do you know I love you? And that's how I pray that we all come to each other. Do you know I love you? Do you really know I love you? And have that conversation alone. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. But if he won't listen, if he or she won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. And this is coming out of Deuteronomy. You see um, the old law coming into place here. So what you do, first one is private correction. The second thing you do is small group accountability. So if the brother or sister won't listen to you after the first time, you bring two or three. And so they don't listen to you, take two or three people from their inner circle. Don't take people who they don't know. They don't have influence in their life. Bring two or three people who are in their inner circle. For example, their connect group. Bring two or three people from their connect group and go talk to them. Because what that will do is this will, this will not only help ensure that they understand the seriousness of what's happening, but it will also show them that you're seeing things clearly. What he kind of does, what Jesus does in this passage, he says, by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. And what he's showing you is that if two or three people are agreeing that this is happening, maybe the brother will turn from his sin and turn back to Christ. You see that? That's the beauty of the small group accountability. Verse 17. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. You're like, what? That's why we've got a lot of people kind of living on the outskirts of the church. They don't want this to ever happen to them. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. So I'm listening. I'm like, man, what is going on here? So the next phase, you take it to the church. You take it to the church. I'm not saying we bring Thomas on stage and be like, guys, this is what Thomas did. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this is where the church elders get involved. You bring the elders of the church in. If they, if they won't listen to you or their connect group, the elders come, and in a more official capacity, they warn them about the seriousness of their sin. So how many levels have we gone through yet? three levels. The fourth, the very last thing, after we've exhausted all of the things, verse 17b says, if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. And this is where you remove them from the church membership and put them outside the church, exposing them to the activity of Satan. Guys, let me, let me affirm something here. They can still come to church and sit in the church. Unbelievers do that all the time. But what happened is just not in the capacity of a family member. Do you see that? There's two different things. That's this, and this reason right here is why we ask people who are not saved to not take communion when we do communion. 
because we believe communion is for the brotherhood, for the saints, the people who are saved. And when a brother or a sister is living in known unrepentant sin, the church is no longer able to affirm that that person is saved or not. And that's how you get into a fellowship or a membership in church. If you look at verse, uh, back over to 1 Corinthians, flip back over there in chapter 5, verse 10, you can see Paul shows us what this looks like. You know, what he says is, I, I, I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters or otherwise you'd have to leave the whole world. He's not, talking about, he's not talking about people who aren't saved. Go eat with those people, hang out with those people, love those people, minister to those people, draw those people in, share the gospel, love on them. He's talking about people who are claiming Christ, who are claiming to have the Holy Spirit living inside of them, but are living a life of sin, of known unrepentant sin. And as you look at the word eat in this place, Eat here means a meal of fellowship. Uh, I'm eating with you because we're brothers, we're family members, right? It doesn't mean you're, 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 you never go anywhere that, you, that you're eating together and all of a sudden you see this person and you say, get away from me, I can't, I can't, I'm eating, I can't eat with you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying a meal of fellowship. So Paul is saying to avoid doing things that imply that you're family. He says, don't do that because you don't want to imply that God is okay with their sin. You see that? This is a hard text, but this is biblical. So there's four things. I want to give you four quick things. There's four quick things that Paul gives us that you, of why you should do this. There's four quick things of reasons of why you should do this. But before I give you those, let me give you a quick little pause because there's something that I want to make clear. When you're talking about public action by a church, we're talking about someone who is defiantly persisting in something that is blatantly against Scripture. Do you see that? This is clear. This is not somebody's opinion. This is not, oh, I don't like what he's doing. This is not, we're not talking about things like, brother, I'm concerned you're watching too much TV. Or, hey, brother, I, I saw that you ran that stop sign the other night. This is not what we're talking about, okay? This is not what we're talking about. But, of course, those things are important because we're talking about sharpening one another in our life. But the later stages of this discipline process is when we're dealing with someone blatantly defying Jesus' authority. See that? Is everybody Okay. Okay, good. All right. All right, for the first thing, the reason why Paul does this, the four reasons why we should do this as a church is for the sake of the sinning brother. We should do this because we love him. We should do this because we love our brother. The goal is always that people would wake up from their sin. Verse five, him that went over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, what? But why, why do we do that? So that, so that the spirit may, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is a saved person. Hand him over to Satan so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So we see the pain of being removed from the blessings of the church wakes them up and brings them back to their senses, right? Because the goal is never punishment or never exclusion. It's always healing and restoration and, re and reconciliation, always. I know we're freaking people out, but it's okay. This is the Bible. It's great. The second reason we do this is for the sake of the church. We do this for the sake of the church. Verse 6, what does it say? Your boasting is not good. Remember, they were saying we're great, we're a grace-filled church. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? And so leaven is not a common word we use today. Y'all are like, you know, I don't, we don't use that word. The word we use today is yeast. Anybody know what yeast is? Okay. This may, this may ruin your love of bread, but yeast is used in the, the making of bread. And it's a type of fungus that makes bread rise. You're like, I'm now paleo all the way, right? 
it grows and it multiplies quickly in bread and it, it makes it rise and, it, and it's, it's imperative in the, in the making of bread. And so if you don't, if you take just a little bit of yeast and put it in the batch of dough, soon all the dough will be filled with yeast. You see what he's saying here? You see the concept he's talking about? The Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament always uses yeast as a picture of sin. Do you see that? And as I look at this, just like a little yeast spreads quickly through the whole batch of dough, a little sin in the church quickly infects everybody in some way. A little unrepentant sin in the church is going to affect everybody in some way at some point. If we're, if we're, called, if we're doing church like we're called to do. I, I, think about this, I think about this sometimes. Like the way we justify sin in the church, it's just a little bit. It's, nobody's going to know about this sin. Nobody's going to, it's not going to affect anybody. Nobody's going to get hurt. Nobody's going to find out just this once. Who's ever thought that? If you, if you say you have it, you're lying. You're a human being, okay? I have, okay? We all have. But the thing is, we only apply that to us, right? If I knew Thomas was saying just a little bit, it's only once, I would be like, bro, no, it's not just once. <laughs> no, no, Right? But let me tell you this. We only apply this context in the context of our lives. Let me show you. Let me, if you were looking, if you were preaching or if you were hot or if you were working, all these things, and you had a cold glass of water, how many of you would drink it and love it? One person? Great. Cool. Three people? Gone. Awesome. But if I would have told you, this is bleach, okay? If I would have told you, I'm just going to pour just a little bit of bleach in there. And I'll just, that's all I'm pouring in there. That's it. Just a little, just a little bit. Just this once. I'm going to shake it up. It's going to be good. Who would drink it now? No one. Just one rebellious person would drink it now. Is that it? That's what I'm saying. You think about this. During the Passover, God told the Israelites, take all the yeast and put it outside the house and eat only unleavened bread, bread without yeast. So they shouldn't keep any of it, even the house. Take it out of the house. Throw it in the yard. Throw it out back. Get it out of your presence. So in the same way Paul is saying, open, unrepentant sin affects the whole church. And for the sake of the church, get it out. Do you see that? Get it out of the house. And so as the church, guys, we're called to guard the holiness of the church. We're called to guard the holiness of the church. We want to have a culture that views sin seriously in the church. I, it's not about me saying I'm judging you or you're judging me. We're looking at things through the spiritual eyes, right? Not physical eyes anymore. We're looking at a church as a spiritual body of people who is called to do spiritual things in the world, right? We're called to love our brother and sister to the point of making awkward situations hard to a point where we're calling that person out saying, you have to stop this sin, you have to stop because it's not only affecting you, it's affecting everyone. Now, maybe you're still having trouble thinking of this as consistent with love. But let me ask you this. Parents who, has, who have children in here, or, you know, maybe, you're, maybe your child has grown up and there's some problems in the home. Maybe they're rebelling, rebelling against the authority of your, of your house and or maybe there's drugs, or maybe there's alcohol, or maybe there's just lying, or cheating, or maybe there's things in, that are violent. Maybe there's things happening in your house where your home is just shaking because of their presence in your house. And this is your son or daughter. I've have, I have things in my life, in my own immediate family, where this happened. Not me. But what I see 
is with a heavy heart and with sadness, you would not allow them to live in your house anymore. You know what I mean? You get, you get that, right? Because that's the most loving thing to do. You, sometimes continuing to protect your child is literally the most unloving thing you can do for them because you're enabling them. Do you see that? So in love, you remove them so they can experience the consequences of their sin. You don't stop praying for them. You pray, God, do your work in their life and bring them back because you love them. And that's what Paul is talking about here. But what's awesome, guys, if you just turn over a chapter, excuse me, a book over in 2 Corinthians, we see that this brother that Paul is talking about repents and comes back into the church. Isn't that cool? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8, what does it say? Paul is actually going to get on to the church now for being too hard on him. Do <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So at the beginning, he's saying, you're being too soft on this guy. Now he comes back and says, you're being too hard on this guy. Be easy, forgive him and bring him back. Look what it says in chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. It says, this punishment by the majority is sufficient for that person. All right, you, pull it back, okay? As a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. Do you see the, the love there? That's the, that the vein that we're looking at, that love of comforting a brother. Otherwise, he may be overwhelmed by excessive guilt. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Do you see that? That's the, that's the goal of everything we're talking about in this chapter. So it, we're, 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 we're trying to do this for the sake of the church. The third thing, we're trying to do this for the sake of Christ. We're doing this for the sake of Christ. Verse 7 and 8, it says, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be an, a new unleavened batch, a holy batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feasts, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice or evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, the holiness, what you see there. And so Christ died, Paul says, to get rid of sin. Christ died to get rid of sin. And so when we look at this, so he's saying, why would this church tolerate in the midst of their, of their gathering, of their groups, sin when he's nailed it to the cross? Why, why would his church tolerate in their midst those things that he put on the cross? Why would we do that in this body? So Paul says that believers, when they come to worship, should rid themselves of sin. That means seek to offer worship to Jesus that's not mixed with the leaven of sin. Remember I told you a moment ago as we're, as we're talking about worship, we're talking about reading the Bible. If I'm saying, hey, I'm a Christian, my life should mimic that of Christ. So that doesn't mean... That's, that your life doesn't have problems, you shouldn't worship. Doesn't mean if you have an issue, you shouldn't worship. Guys, Jesus welcomes people all the time in the Bible with brokenness in their life. We have broken people in this church. He invited the sick and the lame to come to him. Jesus himself said that the well don't need a physician, only the sick do. We need Christ. I do. We all do. The only question is do you have a posture of repentance towards your sin or a spirit of defiance? Does that make sense? Just do an evaluation this morning. You have a, a spirit of defiance, of rebellion, or a spirit of repentance in your life towards your sin. Jesus once told a story in the Gospels about a man who God was most pleased with. He was comparing a tax collector to a Pharisee. The Pharisees were putting up this air of, I'm holy, I have all the right clothes on, 
I do all the right prayers. I do all the right sacrifices. And then you had this tax collector who was a believer, but his life was riddled with ridicule for being a tax collector and a traitor to Israel. And he came before Jesus broken, admitting that he needed help and that he couldn't do it alone in tears. And this morning, that may be some of us who have been trying to hold up this image of who we're supposed to be, hiding our sin because we're scared that we'll be judged for it because we live in a culture of judgment. My heart this morning is that we would come before Christ with repentant, open hearts, knowing that this altar is a place of freedom. This altar is a place of celebration. Jesus invites you to come into a relationship with him to forgive your sins, not to highlight your sins and show them to the world. He wants to cover them in the blood of Christ. And this morning, we know that because of Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, you can have new life in Christ. And my heart today is that's where we would be. This tax collector comes before God in brokenness and humility in his sin, admitting that he needs help. And so bring the, your issues to Christ this morning. Bring your issues to the church, to the brothers and the sisters who can love and support you. But I'll tell you this. You shouldn't lift your hands in worship to Jesus if your life is raising a fist to him in defiance. And this morning, I want you to see that that's what the church has done for a long time. And that's why the world looks at us and say, why do I need that? The last thing, Paul says, do this for the sake of the world. Do this for the sake of the lost. He says, I wrote, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexual immorality, immoral people in the church. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy, the unsaved, swindlers, idolaters. Otherwise, you would have had to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with someone who claims to be a brother or sister in a sexual immoral, greedy, an idolater, verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge the outsiders, the unsaved? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. And so Paul says that these steps are important because we're, we need to give the outside world an accurate picture of who Jesus is. And this is why the world looks at the church and sees it as un, irrelevant. Because what they're doing is they're looking at the people in the church and they're saying, this person is no different than I am. All they do is go to church on Sunday. You see that? We're called to come alive in Christ. But most of the world will never read the Bible. But they will read your life and how you're living. Are we presenting Christ accurately to the world? My heart today will be that we would be. That the church has been called to make an invisible Christ visible to the world by how we live and relate to one another. So the world learns how glorious he is by passionately we worship him. Some of us in the room, like, we're not very passionate about worship, not very passionate about living for Christ. What does your life say about how you present Christ to the world, how we love Christ, how we love each other, how we approach sin, how seriously do we take sin, and how seriously we, we approach it? And so Paul says, for the sake of the outside world, we take sin seriously so that they get a right picture of who Jesus is. You see that? As we look at this, there's four, these four reasons that we just talked about, you know, to go through all the pain, the hassle, and the uncomfortableness of this process. And, and here's a special promise that, that we get wrong sometimes. Jesus promises to be with us in a special way when we're doing this. Jesus ends his instructions in the book of Matthew chapter 18 with these words. 
verse 20, he says, for two or three are gathered together in my name to do this. I am there among them. For a long time, we have taken this verse out of context, right? We've taken this verse out of context. I've heard this quoted many times when an event or a small group is attended poorly. Well, two or more gathered, brother, right? It's not, it's not how this is... It's not how this is supposed to be contextualized, right? Matthew 28, he says he'll be with you always. So if you're just by yourself, he's still with you, okay? He says, when two or three of you are together approaching a brother or sister in sin, I am there among you to give you peace, to give you discernment, to give you wisdom, and to bring about a spirit of love. That's what we're called to do. And that's what I love in this moment. The context of Jesus' statement is when you choose to go through this messiness, this process of loving, lovingly trying to restore someone back to Christ, he wants you to know that he's with you when you're doing the hard work of being unified, loving family. He's like, I'm there for that. I'm there for that. And guys, I'm not sure about you, but like we sang this morning, Jesus be the center of this church. Jesus, be the center of our life. Jesus, be the center of this earth. Guys, I want to be a church where Jesus is the centerpiece of everything we do. I want him to be in every aspect of this church, every meeting, every mission trip, every service, every small group. Jesus is at the center of it all. And I want to do things his way, not my way, even when it's uncomfortable. Can we commit to that this morning? And I don't know where you're at this morning. You may be living in sin. You may not be saved. You may know it. You may be living in sin, unrepentant sin, and you may know it. And this morning's message is not really a, a message of, oh, I, I've heard the gospel. Now I've got to come to Christ. No, but listen, God, the reason why we do this is because Christ wants all men to know him. He wants all men to come into his house and, and feel the love, acceptance, and grace that is in Christ. This morning, I don't know where you're at. I'm not sure if you're living in sin, if you're trying to do the balance beam of, oh, I'm, a, I'm saved, but I'm also living in this way in my flesh. I'm, you know, I'm living at arm's length with the church. I'm on the outside looking in. I don't know where you're at, but Jesus does. He sees straight through you. He knows you better than you know yourself. And this morning, if you know that it's your time to, to come to Christ, to, 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 to say yes to Jesus, to say yes to his free gift of salvation, to saying, I truly believe that God made him who knew no sin to become sin on my behalf so that I could become the righteousness of God. Think about that. It says, for all have fallen short to the glory of God. And Jesus has come as a perfect sacrifice to die in your place. All we have to do is put our faith and belief in him. I believe who he is. I believe what he's done. And I'm following him the rest of my days. If that's you this morning, I pray that you don't leave here without making that right this morning. This morning, if you're a believer and you've been living in sin, I pray that you would grab a prayer team member and say, listen, I need help. That's all you got to say. We'll take you the rest of the way. If you're in there this morning, you know that this morning is the morning that you need to come to Christ for salvation. Come to one of our prayer team members and say, I need Jesus. That's all I need to say. We'll take you the rest of the way. We want to help you take next steps. All you have to do is take the first one. We'll take the next thousand with you. Is that a deal? Cool. Let me pray for you as I pray. You come. Father God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you for who you are. We praise you for what you've done. I pray this morning that you would just be with us in this moment of worship. God, I pray that you would draw our hearts to you. I pray, Father, if there's a brother in this room, a sister in this room that is caught in the, just in the tentacles of sin, that you would just bring them out of it right now in Jesus' name. 
God, I pray right now that you would just bring freedom to this house. God, I pray right now that the person in this room who is cold-hearted, hard-hearted, that doesn't know you, God, I pray that you would break their heart right now in Jesus' name and draw them to you, Father. God, I pray for the person in this room that has been living a life of religion, thinking that religion can get them to heaven. I can, religion can get them to your presence. God, I pray that they would see the error of that thought and come to you, Father, and realize that faith alone is the only way. God, we pray, Father, this morning that you be glorified in all this church does, all this church says, every, every mission this church does. I pray, God, that you would just be the centerpiece of it. You would be the center of this church. God, we love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.